Lauren DeMolo vanished without a trace on June 19th. Police called DeMolo's disappearance suspicious. Lauren DeMolo was last seen more than a week ago at her Cape Coral apartment, and police believe she's in danger. Where is Lauren DeMolo? I'm Hillary Wadsworth. And I'm Caitlin Boddy. And you're listening to Complicit. This is the story of Lauren DeMolo. She's been missing since June 19th, 2020. Well, it could have been June 18th, but we'll get to that. The circumstances around Lauren's disappearance have baffled her family, her friends, even the detectives who've been investigating her case. What's even more baffling are the clues we have and how they've come to light. In this podcast, we'll walk you through the case as we learned about it, through her family, through her friends, and through others who have firsthand knowledge. As the story evolves and details, sometimes uncomfortable ones, unfold, we will do our best to present you with a full picture surrounding Lauren's disappearance and the notable events leading up to that fateful day. Chapter 1. The Heart of Our Mystery Meet Lauren. She's a stunning, 5-foot, 100-pound blonde with bright brown eyes and a big smile, living in Cape Coral, Florida. She was 29 at the time of her disappearance. She turned 30 about a month after she disappeared, but wasn't around to celebrate with family and friends. Lauren was close with her family, specifically her dad, Paul, her aunt, Sue, and her two sisters, Cassie and Lindsay. My name is Paul DeMolo, and Lauren was my oldest daughter. I am Lauren's aunt, Sue. So I am Suzanne, but everybody knows me as Aunt Sue. I am Cassie. I am Lauren DeMolo's sister. Lauren is my older sister by 13 months. We have the same mother and father. My name is Lindsay. I am Lauren's half-sister. So we both have the same mother and we have different fathers, but I've known her obviously my whole life. Lauren is by all accounts a bubbly, outgoing, there to help a friend in need kind of girl. She's a hardworking single mother who, despite having fallen on some hard times, we'll get to those too, she always manages to pick herself up, smile, and carry on. Always had a smile on her face. She was always very outgoing, very happy. She would probably give you the shirt off her back, you know, without a doubt. She'd give you the last dollar in her pocket. Lauren always had a smile on her face. She just looked very approachable. She was happy, and she was always smiling. Lauren... She was vibrant and brought the laughter. That laugh, I just keep hearing that laugh over and over again. She had the the best laugh. You always felt her presence. She's always so happy. She's the sunshine. She was just one of those type of people that always brightened somebody else's day. And they never really judged anybody and was very outgoing, but then sometimes naive at the same time. She trusted too much. If you watch the news and you hear anything about her and they say she was all about namaste and relaxing life and peace like that's what she was all about like she wanted nothing more than to feel energy bring in energy like she's really really sweet lauren really was into finding positive energy in everything So much so that she cemented her dedication to this lifestyle by tattooing the word Namaste in large print down the entire side of her torso. In addition to her family, Lauren's close friend Erica shows us another side of her personality. 
Lauren is a very, very dear friend of mine. She's very forgetful. <laughs> used to drive me nuts. She would like, if I came to like pick her up, she'd get in my car and she'd be like, wait, where's my sunglasses? I'm like, Lauren, they're on your head. She's from New York. So she has this New York accent. She can speak completely normally. If she gets excited or she's like telling a story, she's very animated when she like talks and she uses her hands a lot, you know, her accent comes out so heavily and it's just so funny. She even writes in her accent in her Facebook posts, like I'm quote, out to dinner, spelled D-I-N-N-A. She's just the most loving, caring woman, you know, and selfless is a good word. I consider her family. I consider her a sister to me. In her early 20s, Lauren was living in Staten Island, New York, when she decided she was ready for a change. She moved to Florida, where two of her sisters, two of her brothers, and her mother were living. They wanted her to join them. New York had been good to Lauren. It would always be in her blood. But it was time for a new start. We all convinced her to move down to Florida because she didn't have a lot of family up north. Her and Cassie, we both convinced to move down to Florida, and they were both willing and eager. We were all younger, and we didn't have any kids at the time, and we just went out and partied a little bit, and yeah, we had our, we had our fun in our 20s. Felt like I got my sister back. They really wanted to get to know their mother again, our mother. I even want to say anywhere between five and seven years that they hadn't reconnected, and they were all excited about reconnecting with the whole family. It had actually been 11 years since Lauren had connected with her mother. Cassie, too, for that matter. A divorce and custody agreement awarded Paul full custody of the girls. Their mother moved down to Florida, started anew, and Paul stayed up north. And that was it. And then, you know, she never once contacted them for like 11 years or 12 years, nothing. There was nothing, no communication, no contact, nothing. And then when my daughters, you know, Lauren and Cassie were like 18 and 17 or 18 and 19, you know, they asked if they could talk to, you know, contact their mother. I was like, yeah, go ahead. Lindsay and their other siblings did keep in touch, but living so far away, it was harder for them to have a close relationship. Once her move to Florida was official, Lauren toggled between West Palm Beach, where two of her sisters, one being Lindsay, lived at the time, and Cape Coral, where two of her brothers and her mother lived. Lindsay eventually made her way across the state to live in Cape Coral, and Lauren, too, ultimately chose to call Cape Coral home. Cape Coral is a vibrant, family-friendly southwest Florida town located near Fort Myers and bordered by the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico. It has beautiful white sand beaches, lush golf courses, and the ever-popular Sun Splash Family Water Park, all within its borders. The Cape, as the locals call it, has more than 400 miles of navigable canals, some leading right out into Gulf waters. Basically, it's its own little island. And there's even a lot of signs that say, keep it in the Cape. They want you to dine there, shop there, eat there, stay there. There is a lot going on. I mean, like, really, there's no reason to leave. There have been months and months that I would be like, man, I haven't even left Cape Coral. And there's just so much out there. So then there's also like the beauty of it. There are really, really, really beautiful houses, million dollar houses on the water. There's, of course, a few 
other bad areas. I want to say it's mostly middle class though. And yeah, there's a bunch of canals. They, they even say that there is so much waterway and canal. So many people get lost because there'll be like a Southwest 15th street and then Southwest 16th street will be on the other side of the canal. So you don't even know how to get over and back around. It's, it's very confusing. As lovely as Cape Coral sounds, it also has a dark side. And really, a lot of places do if you start peeling back the layers. For a start, it's no stranger to missing persons, specifically missing women. You have your reports of trafficking, drugs and women, or worse. There's an undercurrent of the nationwide drug epidemic. The opioid crisis is there. Heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, marijuana. It's all in a day's work for the Lee County Sheriff's Office. Their arrest records are public. Just take a look sometime. There's a theme. Lindsay went on to tell us about a coworker of hers who was murdered the previous October after a night out. A random guy who she met out that night. He killed her and stole her car. He was caught and put behind bars. And that incident happened just four blocks from where Lindsay and Lauren lived at the time. We found out that night that she was murdered in her house. I swear, it's like, you don't really hear these stories in such a beautiful town. You feel like your whole world is safe. However, as far as missing persons cases go, they actually do have a decent track record of locating people. In fact, the detective who is assigned to Lauren's case has never failed to solve a missing persons case. It had never even taken him this long to find a missing person. Until now. Until Lauren. Before we talk about the day Lauren disappeared, let's touch on a few more background details. She most recently moved back to the Cape in 2016, and she moved in with her sister Lindsay and her brother Jeffrey. She eventually moved in with her mom and her mom's boyfriend, Victor. We are going to refer to her mom as Anne, though that is not her real name. Anne and Victor had been together for over 15 years, so as Lauren reconnected with her mom, she gained what was more like a stepdad who played an active role in her life. Anne and Victor's two-bedroom, second-story apartment is in a small four-unit complex and boasts an open floor plan and private screened-in lanai. That's such a Florida word, lanai. It's on a quiet, tree-lined street called Tarpon Court and is directly across from Four Freedoms Park with a view of the Bimini Basin Waterway. When Lauren moved in, there was actually another person already staying there, a man named Gabriel, who goes by Gabby. Gabby and Victor are very good friends and work partners at a local flooring and interior design company. But Lauren already knew Gabby. She met him a few years back through her mother during one of Lauren's previous moves to Cape Coral. And they were actually already dating, unbeknownst to some. Even her father, Paul, didn't know about their relationship until two years after they had been together. It wasn't too long after Lauren moved in with her mother and Victor that she and Gabby decided to get their own place together. And Lauren's brother, Jeffrey, who also works for the same company as Victor and Gabby, moved into that extra bedroom. Lauren and Gabby found a one-bedroom place just a quarter mile down the road on Coronado Parkway. Lauren took the apartment in her name. Chapter 2. The Last Kiss Goodbye So, let's get back to June 19th, the alleged day of Lauren's disappearance. 
That morning, Lauren's boyfriend Gabby says he left for work around 6.30 a.m. from their apartment. By Gabby's own account, both to Lauren's family members and the Cape Coral Police Department, Lauren was still asleep in their bed when he was gearing up to leave for work. He kissed her goodbye, left for work, and that was the last time he ever saw her. Lauren usually started her day around 8 a.m. or so with a leisurely walk down the block to Four Freedoms Park, where she practiced meditation. Lauren was known for her meditation ritual. It was truly a part of her being. She meditated so much that she found like a different sense. A lot of people would probably say that's a little crazy. At this point, there was no reason to believe her morning on June 19th began any differently. Four Freedoms Park, remember, is the nearby public park just a block down the road from her apartment and directly across the street from the front of her mother and Victor's apartment, where she used to live. At first glance, it could be described as the quintessential Florida park. Set on three acres of grassy flat land, bordered on one side by water overlooking Bimini Basin, complete with boat docks and a sunbathing beach. Several picnic table areas are scattered throughout the park, and a large, shaded, fenced-in playground for children of all ages sits in the center. Its serene and peaceful ambiance provides ample options for meditating locations, like under a big tree, on the sunbathing beach next to the water, in the grass under the warmth of the sun, and so on. The park isn't totally perfect, though. It's not without its drug-related activities and people under the influence lurking around. But all in all, it's lovely, and was within walking distance from her home, which was important for Lauren, because she didn't have a car nor a driver's license. She didn't drive. She never even had a driver's license, because she was afraid to drive after a car accident. She never even got a permit. The morning of Friday, June 19th, a man who wished to remain anonymous said he saw Lauren that morning around 8.30 a.m. She appeared to be walking toward her apartment from the direction of Four Freedoms Park. This all seemed to be a perfectly ordinary morning until she wasn't seen again. we'll get into more about what happened with Lauren's disappearance. Here's what we know. On Friday, June 19th, Paul, Lauren's dad, received a phone call from Gabby at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's 7 p.m. for Paul in California. Gabby was calling to tell Paul that Lauren wasn't home and that he was concerned. He thought Paul should know. Since Paul was 3,000 miles away, he suggested trying to get in touch with Anne, Lauren's mom, to see if she had heard from her. Remember, Anne and Victor lived nearby, just down the road. Lauren's Aunt Sue, who is Anne's sister, found it odd that Gabby's conversation with Paul happened prior to any contact with local family members. And he never even called my sister to say, is Lauren there? He just walked in the house and called Paul right away and said she's missing. Next day, I call him back, which is Saturday morning. And he said, no, she never came home. I'm at work. I'll call you when I get home. So my daughter, Cassie, called the police department and did a wellness check on Lauren on Saturday. And a policewoman went down there. And then she called me while she was at the apartment out in front and said, listen, 
I just knocked on the door. I saw somebody peeking through the blinds. I couldn't tell who it was, but they won't open the door. So I said, really? I said, kick the door in. They're like, can't do that. Don't have probable cause. Paul called Gabby Saturday evening around 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern time, and still no one had heard from Lauren. Gabby told Paul he had looked for her a couple of places around town after work, but was unsuccessful. I said, when she gets home tonight, as soon as she gets there, because I'm getting really worried, I expect a phone call immediately from her, if not from you or both of you. He goes, I'm not going to be here. I'm spending the night at my friend's house. I was like, hold on a second. I said, the girl you're supposedly in love with and engaged to is not, has not been home and is missing, and you're not going to be there or go looking for her and see if she comes home or look, you're doing anything. You're going out and hang out with your friend? I said, I got a big problem with all of this. Then Sunday rolled around and still no word from Lauren. It was Sunday the 21st, which was Father's Day. And my dad called Gabby again and was like, hey, like, did Lauren come home? Have you heard from her? And he was like, no. And my dad kind of knew something was wrong because Lauren didn't call him for Father's Day. And like, Lauren's not a person to miss a holiday, especially not Father's Day. Like my sister and my dad have a really good relationship and they always, you know, check in. So at that point, like I had actually reached out to Victor and Gabby and asked them like, can you please just go file a missing person report? Like it'll take 15 minutes. I'm like, you don't even have to go there. We can send the cops to your house and you can just do it there. So Victor had like made a big stink about it and was like, yeah, I'm heading over there now. You know, I can't just jump when everyone asks me to. And I'm like, I don't think I'm asking for much. Like my sister's missing. I'm just asking you to go, you know, check. I also didn't know at this point how close in proximity they lived, like two blocks from each other. I actually got into a really big argument that day with my mother and with Victor because they pretty much made a joke about her being missing. Victor got to the house and I was like, okay, like, was Lauren there? And he was like, no. And I was like, okay, well, like, did you check thoroughly? Did you check under the bed? Did you check in the closet? Like, did you check in the bathroom? Like, you know, just making sure that they actually like walked through, they didn't just like poke their head and go, hey, you're here. And then like at that point, Victor made a joke and he was like, yeah, I even looked in the refrigerator and under the sink. And I'm like, okay, like it's not a joke. Like it's not funny. While Cassie was becoming frustrated with her mom and Victor, Paul was becoming equally as frustrated with Gabby. Also that day, Gabby lied to my father and said that when he got to Lauren's apartment, he called the police and they just didn't come. And then my dad called the police station. They were like, they never called us. And then we found out it's because Victor said, don't call the police. I don't want to get them involved. After many words, shall we say, with Paul, Gabby did end up filing a missing persons report in person at the police station that day. I said, you're a lying sack of shit. I said, you have an hour to get down to the police department. I don't care if you take a skateboard. You know, you got to crawl, whatever you got to do. I said, within an hour, I better have a case report. And I better have a missing person's report. I want a picture of it. I want to text it to me. And I hung up the phone. And about an hour and a half later, I got the case number and a missing person's report. Here's Cassie reading the missing person's report as filed by Gabby that Sunday, June 21st, 2020. This is exactly what he's written. I spend the night of Thursday with my girlfriend, Lauren DeMolo, at Coronado Parkway, apartment one, Cape Coral. I left to work in the morning. When I returned around 10 p.m., she was not there. I called the police and was told I have to wait 48 hours. I received a phone call from Lauren's dad who wanted me to file a written report because he does not live in Florida. He wants a case number. Mm 
Chapter 3. They Can't Unlock the Door Without the Key. On Tuesday, June 23rd, three days after she was last seen and before a detective had been assigned to her case, Lauren's sisters, Cassie and Lindsay, and Lindsay's fiancé, Matt, traveled to Cape Coral to see what was going on for themselves. The two sisters didn't feel like enough was being done to help find Lauren. On Monday, my dad called Cape Coral Police Department and they had no update. And they were like, oh, and the girl that like filed it isn't here until Wednesday. So like, there's nothing we can do until then. And then, so then I went down on Tuesday because I got just tired of waiting. Like at this point, like we had not heard from Lauren in like five days. And a lot of people say like June 19th, but like I say June 18th. That's the last time I had any kind of communication with her. So then Tuesday comes around and finally like I'm sick of waiting and worrying. So I drove down to Cape Coral and at that time Lindsay was still living down there. And I told Lindsay I was coming and but before I went to like Cape Coral Police Department or anything, I stopped at the sheriff's office to see if like we could elevate this to like what what we can do to get people out searching and looking. And at that point they told me, you know, it's out of their jurisdiction. And they pretty much told me like there's nothing that they could do at that point. So at that point I called Lindsay and I was like, okay, I'm heading over to Lauren's house. Can you get the key from our mother and Victor? As soon as she arrived in Cape Coral, about an hour drive from Matt's home, Lindsay and Matt got the spare keys to Lauren's apartment from Anne, who remember was just down the block. Lindsay and Matt met Cassie who had just traveled three hours across the state. We went and got the key from my mother. My mom was very adamant about, I need that key back. That's not my key. So I picked up the key from my mom. We searched her apartment. We got to Lauren's apartment and then we called the police to do a wellness check. But with all of their nerves and the anticipation of finding their sister, Lindsay and Cassie could not wait. And the three of them, Cassie, Lindsay, and Matt, entered before the police arrived. There was nothing fascinating in the apartment. It was uneventful. All of her work clothes were there, all of her work aprons, her work hats, her name tags. It was unremarkable. But then they found something kind of remarkable. They found a cell phone in the apartment next to the bed, but it was turned off and wouldn't power on. They had no way of knowing if it was Lauren's, so they held on to it, intending to give it to the police later. While Cassie, Lindsay, and Matt were inside Lauren's apartment, trying to search for clues and awaiting the Cape Coral police officer, Gabby showed up to the apartment, unexpected, unannounced, to retrieve his television. One interesting thing to make note of is that Gabby no longer had his own key to the apartment. The key that Lindsay got from Anne was Gabby's. According to Cassie, on one of the occasions she spoke with Victor, he told her that Gabby, on Sunday after leaving Lauren's apartment, after his words with Paul, and after Lauren had been missing for two days, gave his key to Victor and said, I'm done with this. And then a few days later, he showed up to the apartment when people were there and it was unlocked. Gabriel pulls in. We're like, hey, what are you doing here? And that's when he goes, oh, I'm just going to grab my TV because obviously she's not coming back. But since Gabby brought up the topic of electronics, they wanted to know whose cell phone they found. Remember, it wouldn't turn on. Matt was like, hey, whose phone is this? 
And so Gabriel took it, walked into the apartment, and then walked out with a different phone, which was working, which was Lauren's phone. Gabriel handed it to me and I'm like, this is Lauren's phone, which I knew it was her phone because when I was at her house on the 13th, we had video called with her daughter. So like, I know it was her phone. It was also logged into her Facebook. It was logged into her Facebook Messenger. It was logged into her emails. It was logged into Gabriel's emails that were all deleted. It was also logged into his Facebook, but apparently he doesn't really use it. So then when Gabriel walked back in to get his TV, Matt was like, that's not even the right phone. That's not the same phone I just had. That one's on, the other one wasn't on. So while Gabriel walked in, I walked in behind him and took the other phone as well. So I took two phones and then the police arrived. What Cassie seems to be saying is that it seems like Gabby either showed up with Lauren's phone or he knew exactly where it was in the apartment and Cassie, Lindsay, and Matt had overlooked it. At the same time Gabby was there, the police showed up for the official wellness check. There was no sign of forced entry, nothing suspicious or out of place, except for that cell phone and the other cell phone, both of which Cassie held onto for safekeeping. She wasn't about to let them go until a dedicated detective was assigned to the case. And there was something else Cassie wanted to hold on to. I told her not to give that key back because I want I was going to be there the next day. I wanted to go into that apartment. So did I give the key back to the mother? She said, yeah, mom called me and wanted it back. I told her, no, I'm keeping it. She said I couldn't because it was Gabby's key. Let's go back to the phones for a moment. Cassie now had both cell phones. The one they found plugged in next to the bed that wouldn't turn on. And the one Gabby handed them that was definitely Lauren's that was turned on. The one Cassie knew for sure was Lauren's worked only on Wi-Fi, but Lauren took it with her everywhere. Lauren would never leave her house without her phone because anywhere you go now, like there's always Wi-Fi. Like you can go to a McDonald's, you can go to like a grocery store and you can connect to their Wi-Fi. And there are other uses for a phone, like taking pictures, posting on social media. Lauren posted on Facebook almost daily. She had posted a picture of herself in a bathing suit from a couple of years ago. And then poof, she went off social media, almost feel like she went off the grid. Lindsay is referring to Lauren's last Facebook post she ever made on Thursday, June 18th. Cassie really wanted to know if there were any clues on Lauren's working phone. But unfortunately, it wasn't the treasure trove she wanted. This phone she had only been using since June 8th, so 10 days. I was able to like look in her conversations on like Facebook Messenger, old text messages, like old ones because this is an old phone. So like anything that was saved previously. She didn't have a lot in this phone, like maybe 10, 15 photos. There really wasn't a lot to look into. From what Cassie was able to see, the cell phone history did indicate a Facebook message to Gabby and a video call from Lauren to Gabby at 10 a.m. on June 19th. There was no activity on her phone after that 10 a.m. unanswered Facebook call. And Gabby? He insisted that he never received that call. On Wednesday, June 24th, three days since she was reported missing by Gabby, five days since she was last seen, and six days since she had communicated with her family and posted on social media, a detective was finally assigned to Lauren's case. It seems that in addition to Gabby's delay, there was a clerical error at the police station that had also delayed the paperwork. The unfortunate thing about it is that it was now 72 hours after Lauren's disappearance was reported. 
120 hours since she was reportedly last seen, and 144 hours since her last contact with family and friends. With missing persons cases, the first 48 hours are the most critical. There was a lot of ground to make up. Detective Nick Jones took on Lauren's case and was, and still is, the main man in charge of the investigation. He told a local news station that he's, quote, never not found a missing person. Cassie met up with Detective Jones at the Cape Coral Police Station and brought him up to speed on what had happened since the day Lauren went missing. She then handed over both cell phones. At that point, Detective Jones bumped up Lauren's case from missing to missing and endangered. The and endangered is added when someone leaves without their worldly possessions, as if intending to return home. The fact that Lauren's cell phone was left behind was alarming. This is not Lauren. This is not her M.O. She would never, ever just disappear and go months without speaking to her family, without reaching out to her friends, without contact with her daughter. Absolutely not. Never. It would never happen. That evening, Paul DeMolo arrived from California. He needed answers and he wanted them now. I'm not gonna stop until I find out what happened to my daughter. On the next Complicit, the search for Lauren is on. There was a, a sheriff boat in the water with a diver on it. There were like two other cop boats in the water with divers on it. There was a big van that said Cape Coral Police Department dive team. There was a sheriff's truck. He said, I went to a couple of stores on the way home and stopped to see if she was in there. I even looked under the bridge. I was like, what does that mean, dude? Clues begin to mysteriously appear. What was so bizarre to me is like, how did we miss this before? There's a shirt, clear as day. The case hits the local media and the community rallies. She was a local girl in Cape Coral, and I just felt compelled to go to the search. But where is Lauren DeMolo? Thanks for listening to Complicit, a true mystery podcast about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo. If you have any information about the disappearance of Lauren DeMolo, please call 1-800-780-TIPS. That's 1-800-780-8477. Or go to www.capecops.com slash tips. Or you can text a tip to crimes. That's 274637. Tips can be left anonymously, and there is a reward currently being offered for information leading to an arrest. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and continued developments in Lauren's case. For additional information you won't hear and can't see on the podcast, visit our website at complicit-podcast.com. Also, be sure to follow us on social media, on Facebook at Complicit Podcast, on Twitter at Complicit underscore pod, and on Instagram at Complicit underscore podcast. Complicit is a production of 7th Guest Productions and produced by Resonate Recordings. And now, here's another podcast we like, and you may as well.